right, if you have your Bible with you today, I'm going to ask you to take it and turn with me to Psalms chapter 119. Psalms 119. Now, the Psalms uh, 119, that's going to be almost right in the middle of your Bible. So if you just take it and open it and let it fall, it's going to be pretty close to Psalm 119. But Psalms 119, and we are going to begin reading this morning in verse 161. So Psalms 119 and verse 61. And we are finishing up today a series of messages that we began way back Easter. To live my life with Jesus. And not my guilt, not my failure, not my sins, nothing but Jesus at the heart of everything I am and everything I hope to be and everything I want to do. And over the past few months as we've been working through this series, I've taken time every week to introduce you to an imaginary family, middle class, middle America, middle of the road, middle age, that could be a stand-in for your family or for my family as they've worked through the struggles of living with Jesus at the Take one last trip with them as we finish up uh, this series together, and it has been a great week for them because they got to load up and go to the beach for a much-needed family vacation. How many of y'all love Jesus, but low-key, you kind of hate everybody that's at the beach this weekend? There's probably nothing that's going to do more to the family drama of ordinary life quite like cramming everybody into an 8 by 12 hotel room for a week. But it has, been, it has been a good week then. Mom and dad were able to actually get away from their kids for a couple hours, thank God, and have a nice romantic meal. And as they sat down, their conversation began to drift towards their marriage. And talked about where they'd been, the struggles that they've gone through, where they want to go, what they want to see together, and what they would like to experience in life. And almost at the same time, it kind of dawned on both of them that the biggest challenge in their marriage in that they had been trying to have a marriage their marriage, each of them was expecting the other of them to do all the heavy And so they realized they had overburdened and over unfulfilled and they committed that day to do something they never had done in 20 plus years of marriage. And that was to read the Bible together every day, to talk about what they've read, and to pray together, and to pray for each other. Now, for their son at 17, he had a great week at the beach, too. But he noticed, when he went to the beach, that he would be engaged in a real serious spiritual struggle. Because at 17 years old, he could not help but notice that at the beach, there were all these young women prancing around with almost no clothes on. And he felt this real sense of spiritual warfare every time he would go down to the water. And he prayed, did everything that he could to keep his mind pure and his mind focused on Jesus, even going so far as to ask God for a case of temporary blindness. But deep inside, he wondered, Lord, is this a battle I'm always going to have to fight? Lord, I don't want to just fight temptation. I want to experience victory. I want to win the war. Now, his sister at 14, she had a good time at the beach as far as that went, too. But you may remember a couple weeks ago, I told you that she had been caught sending some pretty raunchy text messages to her boyfriend at 14. 
It happens, mom and dad, believe it or not. But she felt so guilty and so embarrassed that she wanted a new start, just a fresh start, start over. So she decided, just like her mom and dad, that for the first time in her life, she was going to read her Bible. And it went really well for about five verses. Then she started to wonder about things like, how in the world do you pronounce Zerubbabel? And what, what is a Medo-Persian anyway, and who cares? And what does this have to do with me? And after about three days, she relapsed into her old way of living without the Word of God. I think today that all of to have those kind of stops and starts in our spiritual life, don't we? We know what it's like to deal with the same questions, to fight the same battles, to walk over the same territory and feel like we're... Some of you know what it's like to walk with Jesus for... You know what it's like to struggle, to wonder why is the life that I have so unlike the life that I want? Why is my spiritual life so unlike what I feel like it could be? Well, today we're going to look into Psalms 119. And from this passage of Scripture, I'm going to give you a simple observation that is so painfully obvious and so basic that y'all, I'm just embarrassed to give it to you today. Y'all are going to hear this and you're going to think, is that all we're paying him to do? But it's something that really never has worked its way deep into our hearts and into our lives. And that is this. You ready? A gospel-centered life is made up of gospel-centered days. If you are going to live a life with Jesus at the heart of it all, you have to learn to make Jesus the heart of every single day. And so today, we're going to talk about a gospel-centered day. What does it look like for me to live every day with Jesus at the heart of it all? Let's look together in Psalms 119. We're able this morning, as we try and honor the Word of God, we should remember that when we come to the house of God, you are not here to hear what Brother Jesse has to say. You are here to hear what the Lord says in His Word. Let's read what God says in His Word. Psalm 119, verse 161. But my heart, I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. Law, nothing can make them stumble. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I keep your precept testimonies for all my ways are before you. Cry, come before you, O Lord. Give me. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. My lips will sing of your word. All your commandments are right. Let your hand be to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul seek your commandments. You may be seated. I trust the Lord to speak to us today as we consider what it means to live a gospel-centered life that's made up of gospel-centered days. Now, Lamar's coming up here. That means he has nothing but bad news. So am I going to have to use a handheld mic? Yes, sir. Man. 
microphone. songs in the book of Psalms that are about everything from confession of sin to adoration and praise and thanksgiving, Psalms of lament where people are crying out for deliverance. The Hebrew title for the book of Psalms translates to prayers and the Psalms are ordered as prayers to God. And whether you think about the Psalms as prayers or songs, you should realize that what you're reading is the most uh, incredible and intimate record of communication between man and his God. And, and really, there are psalms here for every walk of life, for every moment of life. There are places that touch upon every single thing God's people experience when they are burdened down by their sin, when they are overwhelmed by their circumstances, and when they are hoping in God when they are experiencing triumph and tragedy, when they are defeated, when they are victorious. It's all here in the book of Psalms. And if you have been in church for more than probably 10 minutes, I'm sure you have a favorite psalm. A lot of you would say that Psalm 23 is your favorite psalm where you have these pastoral images of the Lord being our shepherd. If your walk with Jesus is a lot like mine, then Psalm 51 might be your favorite psalm where David confesses his sin and weeps over his failure to obey God. I've always liked Psalm 136, this call and response hymn of thanksgiving. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endureth forever. Oh, give thanks to the God of gods, for His mercy endureth forever. For He alone doeth great works, for His mercy endureth forever. But regardless of what your favorite psalm is, and even if you don't have one, regardless, Psalms 119 really towers over the rest of the psalms for several different ways. One, because this is the longest of all the psalms. In fact, this is the longest chapter in all the Bible, weighing in at 176 verses. But from a literary standpoint, this this great psalm towers above all the rest in some ways because this psalm is presented as an acrostic. If you notice, there are sections to this psalm. Right there before verse 161, for instance, are the words seen and sheen. And then right before verse 169 is the, the word tau. What in the world do those words mean? Those words are the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And each of the sections of the psalm here in Psalm 119 is connected to that letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And every line in these sections begins with that corresponding letter of the Hebrew alphabet. This is an incredible work of Hebrew poetry. But I think this psalm... It casts such a large shadow because it records for us the life of somebody who is head over heels in love with the Word of God. This is somebody who treasures God's Word, who views it as a treasure. Somebody who has committed himself to doing whatever God says in His Word, no matter the cost. Somebody who is centered on the Word of God. It shows us the daily life of an individual who is responding to the Word of God in moments of pain, in moments of joy, in moments where they have to cry out for deliverance, in moments of hope, in moments of discouragement, and in moments of gratitude. You have this person saying, every day of my life is centered on the Word of God. So in real time, this psalm shows us somebody whose life 
is made up of a bunch of gospel-centered days. So for us, how do we bridge the gap from where we want to be to where we can be? How do we experience what the psalmist experienced in Psalms 119? Well, today what I want to try and do is I want to give you really three steps that I see the psalmist making in this passage that are going to help you experience a gospel-centered life made up of many gospel-centered days. And the first step is this. Step one is respond. Respond. It's responding to God as He has made Himself known in His Word. Now, if you look there in verse number 161, the psalmist is somebody who feels like he is trapped. He says in verse 161, Princes persecute me without cause. In other words, there are powerful people that are trying to destroy me even though they have no right to do it. Now, if Psalm 119 was written by David, then David certainly knew what that was like in life. He knew what it was like to have people in power whispering against him as they tried to depose him and take his throne. He knew what it was like to stand on the battlefield and hear the taunts of his enemies who wanted to run him through the neck with their sword. But the writer would say... Even if people whisper against me, threaten me, even if people want me dead, that does not overwhelm me. That does not undermine my confidence in God. That does not destroy me. Why? Because he's not overwhelmed by the lies of his enemies. He is overwhelmed by the truth of God revealed in the Word. You see this in Psalms 119 as he says, I am captivated by the Word of God. I am centered on the Word of God. I have been caught up by what God says in His Word. He does not treat the Bible the way so many of us do, as if it's just this kind of loose collection of inspirational fortune cookie statements. But he realizes that the Word of God is the revelation of God's character given to His people, and that you can build every day of your life on the Word of God. Simply put, folks, I want you to know today, there is never any spiritual formation and there is never any spiritual trans. He is deeply immersed in the Word of God. And the Bible says that this is exactly how spiritual transformation works. The Bible says this in 1 Peter chapter number 1, verse 22. Look at these verses. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again. If you've been uh, called up in a relationship with Jesus, you have been born again, Right? But you've been born not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Here's how it happened. Through the living and abiding Word of God, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. But the Word of the Lord remains forever. And this Word is the good news that was preached to you. Peter writes in this passage of Scripture and says that if you have been born again by Jesus, that that happened because somewhere along the trajectory of your life, God interrupted your life with the message of the gospel in the Word of God. Somebody shared it with you. Somebody preached it with you. Somehow the Word of God took root in your soul and produced new life. And so what the psalmist is saying is what Peter is saying. And that is that if the Word of God gives us life, then we need the Word of God to sustain life. Just think about how the psalmist talks about the Word of God in Psalm 119. He calls it the Word of God, the law of God, the precepts of God, the commandments of God. 
He calls it the testimonies of God. He says that this is everything necessary for spiritual life. Do you realize today that the Word of God is the only reliable source of advice for spiritual living? The Word of God is the only perfect record of God's saving acts in the world. The Word of God in the pages of Scripture is the only sure promise we have about the future in Jesus. The Word of God is the only perfect revelation of the saving and gracious heart of God. And if we are like the psalmist in verse 161, feeling like the walls are closing in and life is coming apart because there are people that hate us for no reason, then folks, if we feel hunted and we feel hurt and we feel stuck, then we need the Word of God. We need to be in the pages of the Word of God, immersing in the Word of God. The psalmist understands that all of, all of our spiritual growth is about orienting our lives around the Word of God and the will of God and the work of God found in His Word. And this is exactly how spiritual growth works. Now, this is for a lot of people a mystery. How does spiritual growth work? The Bible tells us, and maybe we should start here, the Bible tells us that we should be a people who are growing spiritually. The Bible says we are children of God, and we should be maturing in that relationship. I'll say this to you now. It didn't go over well in the first service, but I think it's true, so I'm going to say it again. There's nothing wrong with being spiritually immature. There's something wrong with staying spiritually immature. There ain't a thing wrong with a six-month-old in our nursery today wearing diapers. But if you have a 26-year-old wearing diapers, you've got a problem. We should be maturing and we should be growing. And the Bible uses countless images to talk about our growth and maturity in our walk with the Lord. The Bible talks about us as if we are sheep who should be following a shepherd. The Bible talks about us as if we are a lump of clay on a potter's wheel that he's forming into a vessel of honor. The Bible talks about us as if we are citizens of a kingdom who should be obeying our king. king. And on and on you have all of these images. But the one theological word that kind of wraps all of those together is the word sanctification. What does it mean to be sanctified? What does it mean to be sanctified? In the New Testament... The word sanctification comes from the same family of words that the word saint comes from. And to be sanctified is quite literally to be sanctified. I don't think that's a real word, but it should be because that's what God is doing when He sanctifies us. He is making us into saints. Now, how does He do that? How does it happen? How does God take me... And make me into a saint. This is where we get really, really confused a lot of times. Because a lot of us, we confuse how God declares us righteous and how He makes us righteous. And you need to know this today because if you get this wrong, not only will your eternal soul be in jeopardy, but your life is going to be upside down and miserable and confused. As you can't figure out, is this really God's work or is it my work? See, what happens for a lot of us is we conflate we conflate the doctrine of sanctification and justification. What I mean by that is, sanctification is how God makes us righteous. Justification is how God declares us righteous. And we conflate the two as if God will never declare us righteous until we actually are righteous. 
And so it's when I pray and go to church regularly and when I read my Bible, then God finally loves me enough to really, really bless me. We conflate justification and sanctification, and we think that our justification depends on our sanctification. When I am righteous, then God declares me righteous. Let me tell you something today. God does not declare people righteous when they are righteous. God declares people righteous when they are sinners who believe in Jesus who is righteous. But if we believe that, sometimes we go the opposite way and we divorce justification from sanctification. And we say, well, God makes us righteous, declares us righteous in Jesus. And so if, if we want to, we can become holy and we can become obedient. But it's really not necessary. That, that sanctification or obedience or growth, those are optional for the Christians that, that really get into it, right? And that's why we say all kinds of unbiblical and damaging things like, well, somebody made Jesus their Savior and now they need to make, make Him their Lord. The Bible never, the Bible does not understand that kind of terminology. Jesus is your Lord, alright, period. And you need to trust Him as your Lord. And you can't take Him as your Savior and not take Him as your Lord, alright? But, we think it's this add-on optional menu item, like when you go through the line of McDonald's and you order your Big Mac or your filet of fish or whatever, and then the lady in the little speaker box says to you, hey, do you want to add two apple pies for 99 cents today? Yes, I do. But it's just an option. It's just available if you want it, but it's not probably what you came for. A lot of you today think, hey, man, I got saved one day, that was a big day, and I'm going to heaven one day, and that's going to be a big day. What about the long in between? What about the middle? What is God doing for us in the middle? Here's how the Bible talks about this. In one simple place, a verse of Scripture, two verses in 1 John 3, that I think every one of you need to memorize and understand this. It says this, Beloved, we are God's children now. Today. Right now. And thank God... If I'm part of the big family, no matter how good I am, I can't ever be more of a child. And no matter how bad I am, I can't ever be less of a child. I've been born again, and I can't ever be unborn. I can't ever be unadopted. God does not adopt children and then send them back. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be, there's a now and a not yet. What we will be is not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Because we shall see Him as He is. And then John says this, And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as he is pure. If I know, if I know that I'm God's child, and if I know that what we sang a moment ago is true, that one day I'm going to take Him by the hand, and I'm going to walk around a world where there is no suffering and no pain and no death. If I know that's happening, then what is out there in the future is going to start working its way backwards into my life now so that I'm working to purify myself as a response to the work of God. Is sanctification my work or God's work? It is my response to the work of God. It's like this. The other day, I was trying to make a slinky go down the steps here at church because I take my job real seriously and I work real hard. And gravity pulls that slinky down those steps. It's just the way it works. It's a law that's greater than me, greater than you, greater than that slinky. So it is, too, that our eternal destiny in Christ pulls us, not down, but pulls us upward so that what we will be is working itself out in us now as we respond every single day to the truth of God's Word in the gospel of Christ. And the psalmist knew that reality. In Psalms 119, verse number 166, he says this, Notice what he says if you still have your Bible open. 
He says, I hope for your salvation. Oh, Lord, I am longing for the full and the perfect, complete deliverance that God is going to give. I hope for your salvation, and I do your commandments. Because that hope is such a concrete reality, I'm going to obey you now. That's step one, respond. You have to understand that God expects of us to respond daily to His work and to His Word. What's the second step? The second step is routine. We'll call this routine. I'm talking about the daily habits of life. What do I actually need to do in response to what God has done to work out the salvation He has worked in me? What do I need to do tomorrow to live a gospel-centered life? Well, let me tell you this today. You need to do something. All right, because, and, and write this down. Write this down. Take a note of this. Even if you're not taking notes, write on the back of your hand or something. I want you to write it in the first person so you'll know it. I will not drift towards holiness. I will not drift towards holiness. Nobody has ever been sanctified by accident. It takes discipline. You can't be a disciple without being disciplined. It takes dedication. And it takes a plan. What plan should you implement in the normal routines of your life to make sure you live a gospel-centered life? I don't think I've ever told the whole church this. I've told a handful of you here and there. But about this time last year, I took up jogging for unknown reasons. Seemed like a good idea at the time. I had, like some of y'all, I had gained the COVID-19, you know, and um, wanted to get rid of that so I could button my coats again. And so I took up jogging and I had never had ran, I hated running, still really hate running, but I didn't really know where to start, right? And so I found this app on my phone called Couch to 5K. And the idea behind the app is that it takes people like who, who break a sweat putting a hot pocket in the microwave and it gives... <laughs> It gives them a, a simple and a clear plan. Here's what you do on day one. Here's what you do on day two. And you go through that plan for however many weeks, six weeks or something like that. And by the end of it, you've ran a 5K. You've ran three point whatever miles to make up a 5K. What is the couch to 5K plan for spiritual couch potatoes like us? To get off of our seat. And to take the next step in our relationship with Jesus. I want to give you three routines you need to make part of your routine today. The first one is read. Read. You need to immerse yourself in the Word of God every single day. You see that in Psalm 119, don't you? This is a man who loves the Word. He clings to the Word. He cherishes the Word. He's doing everything that he can to expose his heart to the truth of God's Word. He wants the Word working in his life. And he's not just reading it. He's not just reading one verse of Scripture ripped out of context in a little devotional magazine and then somebody's two-paragraph commentary on it. But he's hiding it in his heart. Because he says in Psalms 119.11, he says, I've hidden your Word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So how, how, how should we be relating to the Word of God? You should read your Bible every day. 
You should work hard to read big chunks of Scripture. You should take a long time reading small passages of Scripture. You should study the Bible. Lord, help y'all. I believe that we'd have revival in Southern Baptist churches if we'd quit doing Bible studies and start studying the Bible. We should memorize, memorize verses of Scripture. If you want to feel convicted about something today, what was the last verse of Scripture you memorized? Because for a lot of us, man, it was when we were in Sister Hazel's primary Sunday school class, right? She said, if y'all memorize this verse, I'm going to give you a piece of candy. When was the last verse of Scripture you actually hid in your heart? If you want a plan, an actual plan you can implement tomorrow to read your Bible, then see me as soon as church is over. I've got some in my office. I can put the plan that I used in your hand. And you can say, hey, tomorrow I'm going to be reading here. I really do believe it's so simple. As a pastor, I talk to people at the worst moments of their life. When they're burying loved ones, when their marriages are falling apart, when they're struggling with addiction and things that that would terrify us to talk about in public. Almost invariably, at some point it's going to come down to, are you actually reading your Bible? And the answer almost always is no. And I'm telling you, we need to get in the Word of God every single day until the Word of God gets into us. You should never have a single day of your life where you don't hear from God and His Word. Never. You don't have to settle for living life where you are disconnected from the God of heaven. But you can live every day hearing from God and His Word. The second routine you need to develop, prayer. Psalms 119 is a prayer. He's praying, verse number 170. He's praying, let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. His prayer is such, Lord, do what you said you would do in your word in me. He's praying as a response to what God has said in his word. And that's what prayer is. Tim Keller, my favorite pastor, he said that prayer is a conversation with God. And it's a conversation that God has already started. Look at that. It's responding to what God has said in his word. Just as you should never go through a day of your life where you don't hear from God, you should never go through a day of your life where God doesn't hear from you in prayer. Third, the third routine you should embrace today is what I'm going to call sing. You see it in verses 172 and 173. This is a man of praise. He's committed to worship. He's committed to exalting God and making much of Him. And I know as soon as, as, soon as I say you need to sing every day, some of y'all are thinking, now wait a minute, Brother Jesse. That singing stuff ain't me. Hey, it ain't, it ain't me either. Like, I know, I know what my weaknesses are, buddy. And I know that there ain't nobody came to church today to hear Brother Jesse sing. I promise you. Maybe a better word for it would be praise or worship. Regardless, this is a man who is living his life for the glory of God. He wants God to be known and for God to be magnified and for God. Here's, here it is. He wants God to work in his life the way God has revealed himself in his word. God, use me to show yourself gracious. Use me to show your power. Use me to show your faithfulness. God, prove yourself in my life. Let my life be the tapestry where you are weaving together a picture of your glory. In other words, this is a man who realizes that worship is not a feeling. Worship is a habit. See, a lot of us as God's people, we want to worship. We like to worship. 
We hope to worship. We come to church and we hope, man, I hope the, hope the choir's on point today and I hope the preacher's got something to say and we want to be kind of caught up in worship. This man is not wanting to be caught up in worship. This is a man who's chosen to worship. I am going to worship. Because worship is not about responding to your feelings. It's about all of you, including your feelings, responding to God. And you can choose to do that in everything you do, in every aspect of life, every day of your life, whether you feel like it or not. In fact, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and verse number 31, he said, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. Some of y'all going to go grill hot dogs tomorrow for Memorial Day? You're going to support the troops and you're going to throw those Oscar Myers on your charcoal grill? Paul said you can do that for the glory of God. You can put chips in queso for the glory of God. Every little thing, every moment of your routine can be lived as an act of worship. And so this psalmist has those three disciplines he's engaged in. And the discipline of praying, reading, and singing or worshiping, those disciplines fuel his delight. And his delight in the Word and in the Lord drives his discipline. Step two is routine. Step one is respond. But step three is reward. Maybe this is really the finish line. What, what do we get from living this kind of life? Because most of us are about the bottom line. We want to know, all right, if you expect something from us, what's going to be in it for us? Well, what kind of life does the psalmist live? The psalmist is a man of peace. The psalmist is a man of security. The psalmist is a man of deep joy. The psalmist is a man of hope. The psalmist is a man who has found the wellspring of happiness in verse 162. This is a man whose life is transformed. This is a man who's living the kind of life that we want to live. He's not getting tripped up, he says in verse 165, by the lies around him. But he's a man who's walking in a long obedience and following the Lord as he's made himself known to be. He's living the life that God's people want to live. And we feel like it's somehow beyond us. But I think the greatest, to me, the greatest expression of this and the expression of the attitude of his heart is in the very last verse of the psalm. In verse 176, look there with me. The psalmist says, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. What an honest but hopeful prayer. The psalmist says, Lord, I am like a sheep that has wandered from his shepherd. And I need you to come after me. Like a a sheep that wanders from his shepherd is vulnerable. Lord, I'm vulnerable without you. Like a sheep that wanders from his shepherd is going to be malnourished. Lord, I'm going to starve to death spiritually without you. Like a sheep is distant. And can't hear the voice of his shepherd. He's saying, God, come after me. What the psalmist actually says, if you get deep into his heart, the psalmist says, Lord, I am not where I want to be. Lord, I am not where I want to be. So, you can probably anticipate the next question. Are you? Are you where you want to be in your walk with Jesus? You remember when you used to go to summer camp with the youth group? And depending on when you went, but they'd take you in, you know, those hot meeting rooms and you'd 
hear that music about Jesus and you'd, you'd come to the altar and cry. And man, you love Jesus. Man, maybe when you were a teenager, you loved Jesus more than you loved anything in the world. Is that where you are right now? You remember when you stood up in front of your church family and, and all of your friends and everybody that, that ever had known you and you stood up here with the bride or the husband that you wanted to spend the rest of your life with and you made those promises? Do you, I do, do you, I do, and then you did? And you remember how much hope you had that your home was going to be a home filled with joy and peace and love and your home was going to be filled with the presence of Jesus. Do you remember that? Has that been your daily experience? Do you remember when the Lord first saved you? And how sweet it was and how you wanted to grow and how you wanted to turn the world upside down for Jesus? Are you... Are you where you want to be right now? The psalmist says, Lord, I'm not where I want to be. I sense in us as God's people that more often than not, we are like sheep away from our shepherd. We don't have the joy that we ought to have. We don't have the peace that we should have. We don't have the sense of purpose that the Lord gives. We just walking around in circles instead of walking with Jesus. If you're walking around in circles today instead of walking with Jesus, what is the first step you need to take? The first step you need to take is to do what the psalmist does here and just to be crazy enough to tell the Lord, Lord, I am not where I want to be. Lord, I don't have the peace that I want. I don't have the sense of purpose that I want. I don't have the excitement and the joy that I want. Lord, I'm like a sheep that has gone astray. And then, after you've done that, you need to develop a real plan to expose your heart to your good shepherd who's going to come after you. This psalmist says, I am like a sheep going astray. Lord, come after me. Folks, that's what God loves to do. He loves to go after lost sheep. He loves to find them when they are away from Him, when they are bruised, when they are broken, when they are afraid, when they are directionless, when they are scarred, when they have been away a long time. He loves to come after us when we are lost. He loves to come after us when it's been a long time since we've walked faithfully with Him. He loves to come after us when we are walking around in circles instead of walking with Jesus. In fact, the Lord says in Matthew chapter number 18 that His heart was with the one that was lost, not with the 99 that had been found. This is what he loves to do. He loves to pursue things that are lost. And thank God he does. Because we don't have any hope without that. But because of that, we have all hope. And we can say, Lord, I am not where I want to be. But Lord, you come after me. You pursue me. But if you want him to come after you, you've got to get where he's at. How do you, how do you get, get, get in his way? You do that by getting in his word. You do that by going to him in prayer. You do that by singing in worship a little bit. Saying, Lord, you are worthy even in spite of all the mess that I've made. And you'll start to find out as you put yourself in God's way that your shepherd's been pursuing you all along. And his heart is to give you the life that you never thought you could have had because this is what he loves to do. Here's how Paul talks about all this. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The Apostle Paul's talking about the Old Testament. Okay, And he says this, For If what was being brought to an end, that's the Old Testament, came with glory, much more will what is permanent, that's the work of Jesus, have more glory. 
Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face, so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ it is taken away. Now, what Paul says there is that when the unbelieving Jewish people would read the Old Testament law, they had like blinders on their eyes, and they could not see Christ. He says, just the way Moses had a veil over his face, he said, they have a veil over their face. But then he says that Christ, in Christ the veil is lifted, verse 16, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. I love that, man. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. What is Paul getting at in that passage of Scripture? He's saying this. It's a biblical principle all throughout the Bible. You will become like what you behold. Now, to behold something means to have your attention fixed on it. It means to be gazing at it. It means to be intently looking. If we behold Christ, we will become like Him. If He is the center of our hearts... He will work His way out into the circumference. Now, if my job is the center of my heart, then that's going to work its way out. If my pursuit of material things is at the center of who I am, that will work its way out. If my pleasure or my ambitions, if those things are at the center, they will work their way out. But if Jesus is at the center, Paul said, you will be so transformed as to become like Him. That is what God wants to do in our lives. He wants to let us see so much of Jesus that we start to become like Him. And we become mirror images of Him in this world through His work and through the work of the Spirit. Do you have a plan in place for that to happen? Some of you need that plan. Some of you need to just come and say, Lord, I am not where I want to be. I'm not where I want to be. And Lord, I want to get to where you have me to be. Others of you need to make a plan. Tomorrow, I'm going to read the Word. Come see me. I can get a plan in your hands. You could Google it and find five million different Bible reading plans. You need to develop a plan to pray every day so that not a day goes by where God is not hearing from you. Just imagine. Just imagine how different it would be going to work tomorrow. Well, you're probably not going to work tomorrow, but going back to work on Tuesday. When after a holiday weekend, you've got all this work to catch up on and everybody's stressed, Half the people you work with are hungover. and Nobody wants to be there. And attitudes are off the charts. And your first temptation is, I could probably kill some of these people and I could get away with it for a while. Imagine how different your professional life would be if before you heard a word from your boss or your coworkers, you had already heard from Jesus that day. Imagine how different your marriage could be. Just imagine how different it could be. If instead of taking every complaint to your husband or every frustration to your wife, you were taking that to Jesus in prayer all throughout your day. Just imagine how different you would raise your kids if you realized you were doing it not merely as an act of survival, but as an act of worship. I am raising disciples who are going to, by His grace, make much of Jesus. What would it do to your life? To really have that routine to say, I'm going to live a gospel-centered life made up of gospel-centered days. Let's stand together today. Shanda and Gary, you guys just come play softly.
If you would, we're not going to sing our invitation today. But I'm going to give you a chance to respond. Because God has shown some of you today, hey, I am not where I want to be. And I want things to change. And I'm going to give you a chance just to pray and say, Lord, change it. Change me. Seek me like the lost sheep that I am. And bring me to yourself. For others of you, your next step today is to get a plan to read the Bible in place every day for the rest of your life. To be in the Word of God. For others of you, it's prayer. For others of you, it's worship. Maybe some other next step. You can take that next step today with the shepherd who seeks his sheep. While we pray softly, if you need to respond, this altar is going to be.